Well, as I mentioned, this passage really is about redemption. And I don't know what comes to mind for you when you think about the word redemption. A lot of us, when we think about redemption, it's, it's a second chance, a place where maybe there's been failure the first go around, and now we come through when we get our second chance. I think the first time that I ever encountered the word redemption or thought about this idea of to redeem, uh, I was in third grade and I lived in Alpharetta, Georgia off Jones Bridge Road. It was really rural area at the time. Uh, and there was a little corner grocery store called Young's that my friend Jonathan and I, we'd take the mile march uh, to get candy and snacks every so often whenever our parents would let us. And I can remember this one particular trip, Jonathan and I were walking down the road, and he starts walking by the side of the road, and he was pulling out these little nasty bottles off the side of the road. And he'd pick it up, and he'd start inspecting it and looking at it. And I was like, what are you doing, man? Put that down. That's nasty. That's gross. You don't know where that's been. And so he'd look it down, throw it, look at it, throw it down. And then all of a sudden, one time, he unscrewed the top of one of the bottles, and his face lit up, and he read it, and, and he said, look at this. And he showed me the bottle top, and it said simply this, redeem for one free soda. And, and like a shot, we ran the rest of the way to Young's Corner Grocery, and we swapped out this nasty old bottle for this new, clean, full, Liquid refreshment that would be the envy of every third grader in our neighborhood. We loved Mountain Dew. And this is what we got in return for this nasty old bottle. We redeemed it. And I spent the rest of my third grade year looking for bottles, plastic bottle tops inscribed with the message of redemption. And all my hopes for Mountain Dew. And you know, what, what, is, um, what is interesting about Ephesians chapter 2 and the message of Ephesians so far is that God tells us that we as his people have actually been inscribed with the message of redemption. It's written upon us. And, and the word redemption means to buy back, to reclaim, to restore, to an original condition or purpose, to ransom someone's freedom. And so in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, it says that our life has been inscribed with the message of redemption, that you've been sealed with the king's official stamp, and that the big thing that God is up to in the world around us is this idea of redemption. He is not simply redeeming. He is not redeeming old plastic bottles, but a people for himself who were lost and who have been found, a people who were bankrupt and lost and empty, but they're being redeemed to rightly reflect the image of God that they were originally designed and created for. So Andrew spent the first few weeks looking at Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And that was the bad news. And we hammered the bad news. That there is, among other things, true about our nature is that we are dead spiritually. We're dead spiritually. And that there is this congruency about our life, a consistency with the rest of the world and the way that they think about things like power and sex and money, and that the way we thought about those things was consistent with the world around us and consistent with our nature, that we were enslaved to these patterns of selfish behavior, using people around us, seeing resources as competition with other people, using and abusing power so that 
now that the way that we looked at our brothers and our sisters and our family was always through this lens of me first, selfish behavior patterns, rhythms of life where we shamed others and ridiculed and lived for our own interests. Where did that come from? Well, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says it comes from a nature within us so that the external realities that are being played out are consistent and congruent with something deep within us. That we share the very nature of Adam who chose to live life apart from God. And that nature was passed to us. And so sharing his nature, we've made that same choice to live apart from God all day long, every day, and therefore have become objects of disgust, objects of wrath, destined for the bottom of the garbage heap, just like those bottles on the side of the road. But then we got to verse 4, and that's what we talked about last week, where it says that, but God, because of his great love for us, because he is rich in mercy, he initiated an act of redemption. That he made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions, that Christ traded himself in that he became sin for us, that he went to the bottom of the garbage heap, that he became the object of disgust in the Father's eyes so that we could be redeemed and purified and cleansed and whole and made new. And so what I want us to see this morning is that God's redemption in Jesus is always both accomplished and applied. What that means is that what Paul is doing in Ephesians chapter 1 through 10, is that he's summarizing the gospel and the things that he's already said are true of us, what Christ has accomplished for us, and that he's also previewing the rest of the book and what is going to happen to people who receive the gospel of grace by faith and how it begins to be applied in their actual lives, chapters 4 through 6. Because Paul says really in every single one of his letters, that anyone who truly embraces the grace of the gospel through faith begins to live a life of congruency. Congruent. Do you know what that word is from geometry where you have two angles that measure the exact same in terms of degree? We call those angles congruent. They're the same. They're matching. And what what Paul is saying is that what has been accomplished in uniting believers to Jesus is that we get a new nature. He is the second Adam. And so that what should be happening then on the outside of our life would be consistent and congruent with the new nature inside of us in terms of new thoughts and desires and choices, a reflection of this new internal reality that is ours in Christ. And that is what has been accomplished for me internally. And so, well, my outer life should begin to match it as well. And so I want you to see what Paul says about redemption in chapter 2 of Titus. Chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. should be on the screen. Here's what it says. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. And listen to what that grace does. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, listen, to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people 
that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Here's God's grace changing us from the inside out, creating congruency. Externally, those who receive God's grace, they begin to say no to ungodliness. They say yes to self-control. Their lives begin to reflect the character of God as they think differently about money and sex and power than the rest of the world. Suddenly, there's a congruency with God and not the world around us. But internally, the people of God, they have something new as well. They have new motives and new desires. They're eager to do what is good. That's what he says. He's redeeming a people for himself that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So my question is, are we there yet? Would you say that's true about about yourself? Do you sense an eagerness a consistent desire for God. You know, a father can dream, right? We can, I can say to my son, oh, I don't want you to just go through the motions at school. I want you to love school. I want you to care about school. I want you to want to be kind to your brothers. I don't want you to just go through the actions. I want you to want it, to desire kindness. A pastor can dream too. I don't want you to just serve in the nursery I want you to want to serve in the nursery. I don't want you to do it just because it's your duty, but because you're eager to do it, right? Pastors can dream. God says he loves a cheerful giver. He doesn't just want us to give generously. He wants us to be cheerful when we do it. And so what I would say as I was thinking about this work of redemption is that God has his work cut out for him this morning as we look at what he aims to do in our life. And how far we are from that. But our passage this morning is telling us that we are very much a work in progress. It's one of those passages that points to this tension that we live in between the already, what's been accomplished, and the not yet fully realized, what's being applied. Something that's being fully accomplished, namely my justification, and then something that's still ongoing. Working itself out, but not complete. And that's my sanctification. God is sanctifying, not just the externals, but the internal desires and motivations, making us people who become eager to do what is good. Oh, God, work that within me. And so the first thing I want you to see is that those things that grow, that those things that come out of our lives in terms of justification and sanctification, they really come from the same source. And so what we'd say is that redemption begins to happen when we receive, number one, the grace of our maker. Receiving the grace of our maker. I know that's a weird way to say it, but I'm trying to organize the M words this morning. And so it sounds a little strange, but if you have something better, see me after service. Here's how, what I'm, what I'm trying to say is that God in this text, he's a creator. He's made something. What has he made? He's made you alive in Christ. So he's making things. And here's how Eugene Peterson puts it. Work the things that come out of us. Work can be either good or bad, an area where sin is magnified or where faith matures. For it is the nature of sin to take good things and twist them ever so slightly so that they miss the target to which they are aimed, the target of God. We live in a universe and in a a history where God is working. He's active. Before anything else, work is an activity of God. All of our work goes wrong when we lose touch with the God who works, his salvation in the midst of the earth. 
And so in order for me to walk in the good works that he's prepared for me in advance, I have to stay in touch with God. I have to live in communion with him. I have to receive his grace. And that's because with God, relationship with God and belonging to God always comes before the good works of redemption that he produces in and through me. Belonging always comes before doing, being before doing. And so when we look at the text, let's dive in here and see this. Notice in verses 5 through 7, here's how he starts. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And so what is God up to in terms of redemption in this section of the passage? What is he doing? Well, he's making us alive with Christ. That's for sure there. He's making dead people spiritually alive. But he's also raising us with Christ. And he's seating us with Christ. You know, when a king sat down, it meant that in the land a new decree had been established. That a work had been finished. That there was a new kingdom reality that had been accomplished. And so to signify that the work was done, the king sits down. And we know that Jesus is sitting down at the right hand of the heavenly father right now, declaring it is finished. And this says we are seated with him, meaning that all this finished work of Christ is 100% applied to us. And all the riches of his grace, we have it. In our, it can't be lost. And here's the declaration that's over all that. You'll see that highlighted in yellow. Here's the big heading, by grace you have been saved. How has all that been accomplished? By grace you've been saved. We have to receive that grace in order to experience that redemption. And so I want you to notice something about that passage. It doesn't say anything about behavior change, anything about your obedience. It doesn't say anything about what you contribute or what you do. It's all about what Christ has done for you. There's nothing about good works in there. And yet in this particular passage, we see the next section in verses 8 through 10, that the great, by grace you have been saved through faith starts the same way. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now here in this section, we see something is beginning to come out in our lives. That, there, that we are his workmanship and that there is good work coming out in, in terms of behavior and transformation and desires and character. There's new life. And so we see these good works in Ephesians 4 through 6 as we go into the later part of the book. We're going to see how these good works begin to affect every sphere and dimension of creation. Every relationship that we have. He begins to talk about how we parent and our marriages and how we relate to one another within the church and how we relate to people outside of the church, that these good works, that there's this way in which the church, the people of God, as they're redeemed, this beautiful work begins to spill out of their lives, and they become a picture 
a miniature Christ who is informed by new desires and motivations, bearing fruit in the world around him. But Paul is so careful to lay the same heading over both sections. By grace you have been saved. By grace you have been justified. And by grace you will be sanctified. This is not about you. This is about what God is actively doing so that whenever anything comes out in terms of new life, in my thoughts and desires and actions and choices, who gets the credit? It's God. He is the one that is at work. This is so critical that we would never get these out of order, that my doing is not motivated by trying to earn, but rather by receiving through faith the finished work of Christ for us. And that's why Paul lays out 4 through 6 before, and 7 before he gives us 8 through 10. And so here's what we have. It's, it's this gift of God given to us, received by faith. And then secondly, in order for us to grow in our redemption, we need to remember that we are his masterpiece. His masterpiece. Verse 10 says this, For we are his workmanship. That word workmanship is this absolutely gorgeous word in the Greek. It's the word poema, and it means poem. It's where we get the word poem from. And it's this idea that what God is creating in you and that what you are to God is a piece of beautiful art. A piece of art. Can you think about the fact that you are God's masterpiece now, I want you to think about this. Have you ever seen a masterpiece slashed or defaced? Michelangelo, he created a statue called the Pietà, and it took him over 200 years to create. I'm going to put, put a picture on the screen for you as you look at this picture of Michelangelo's statue. It's 500 years old. Uh, it's a picture of Mary holding the crucified Jesus, about six and a half feet by seven and a half feet tall, and it's carved out of one piece of marble. Just one piece of very rare marble. And so it took him almost two years to, to create it. And if you look at the intricacy of that, and you think, man, how did he do that? That's his, his masterpiece. Fifty years ago, there was a man who jumped a rail at St. Basilica's, uh, St. Peter's Basilica, and he delivered 12 blows with a hammer to this statue. Just defaced it. Took off Mary's hands and parts of her face and her fingers. And here's what's true. That in some ways, the original beauty of the art makes it a far greater tragedy when it gets defaced. And also, it magnifies the horror upon which we look on it. Everybody in this room, the Bible says, is a masterpiece. A work of art that's been defaced. And I want you to think about the talent and the skill and the workmanship the knowledge, the time, the labor, the intensity that it takes to restore it to perfect beauty, that has to be enormous. It took 11 months to, re to restore 11 hammer or 12 hammers on the piata. And here is God, what God is saying is that he is committed to doing the same thing with you. And for everyone who is in Christ, through his grace and his his labor and his intensity. And so what does it mean that you are God's workmanship? That you are a piece of art. I don't really know how to define art. 
Some of you are great artists. If I were to describe art, I'll just try to describe it. I would say art is beautiful. And art is valuable. And art is is an expression of the inner being of the artist. An expression of the inner being of the artist. So as you begin to think about the fact that you are God's masterpiece, his piece of art, I want you to think about as we get ready to take the table in just a few minutes, the Lord's Supper, that what we should remember is that this means that God's love for us as his masterpiece is it's not just some general love that's out there, but rather this specific expression for us that he has given himself to sanctify his bride, the church, that he might cleanse us and present us to himself in splendor with radiance, without spot or wrinkle, holy and blameless. Jesus didn't just die so that you would know that God loves you. He actually also died so that he could turn you into something beautiful and splendid and full and free. God's saying, I'm the artist. You're the art. I'm the painter. You're the canvas. He's the sculptor. I'm the rock. I know you don't look like much laying over there in the quarry but I'm not finished with you yet. I'm working on you. I'm the maker, and you're my masterpiece. And so as we go to the table this morning, we need to rethink what love is all about. C.S. Lewis says it this way, you you asked for a loving God, well, you have one. Not a senile old benevolence that drowsily wishes you to be happy in your own way, Not a cold philanthropy of a conscientious magistrate, nor the care of a host who feels responsible for the comfort of his guests, but the consuming fire himself, the love that made the worlds. He's saying, you don't have a sleepy old grandpa. You don't have this sweet old lady bringing out milk and cookies and extra blankets. You have consuming fire. That's what you have in the maker creating his masterpiece. Think about the, an artist with his art, the intensity of his gaze, the focus, the labor over it. Think about Michelangelo with his chisel and his tools working on this big slab with the, the, the labor and the sweat. An artist bleeds over his art. They honor it. They cherish it. They live for it. This is how God regards you as a Christian this morning. His masterpiece And so I want you to realize there's a few implications as we think about this. Number one, Henry Nouwen says that there are three basic lies that every person believes about themselves. I am what I have. I am what I do. And I am what other people think about me. So my identity is in what I have and what I do and what other people think about me. And to some degree, to some extent, every single one of us resonates to one of those lies in significant ways, and it affects us. And here's what this promise, that we are his workmanship, his masterpiece, as we meditate on this promise and appropriate it by faith, it can strip all those lies of its power. Have you ever meditated on that, that reality? that you are an expression of the innermost beauty of the creator of the universe. God says, you see the Grand Canyon? You see all the stars in the heavens? You see all that I've created? That ain't nothing. 
It's you. You're my masterpiece. You're an expression of my innermost beauty. And so if God is the sculptor and you're the marble, it may also mean that he's coming at you with a very big chisel. And so what this passage also implies is that what God wants more for me than anything else is to be holy. And if he held nothing back from starting the work of redemption in my life, then surely he will finish it. Charles Spurgeon says that God has never chosen a man to leave him as he is. And what that means is that when I'm longing for more desires and congruency in my life, God, I want more eagerness. I want more desire for God to mark me that I'm never hopeless because of God's love for me as his masterpiece. And it also means that I can never be content to stay as I am. I must move forward, that there would be a longing and a willingness for God to bring about transformation in my life by any means necessary. Bring the chisel. I want it. I need it. And so we begin to see that through his word and through his spirit, through gathering together for formation during worship, even through providence, through things in his li- our lives that are painful, circumstances that are frustrating, that we don't get, that we wish we could get out from under. We don't want to see God in the midst of those. But what this tells us is, no, these circumstances, his providence, every one of them is a brush and a chisel for him to be creating his masterpiece and beginning to work out his beauty in our lives. Those moments are so easy to resist. I mean, when we start to experience that pain, we don't want anything to do with God. God says, lean into it and lean into one another because the third implication is that while God's spirit and his word and providence are active and at work, we are also meant to be doing this in one another's lives. That we are to co-partner with God in building friendship with people so that we can do truth and love with them. That I'm partnering with God in the realization of the greatness that he has inherently put within you. That's part of what we are called to do as the body of Christ, to be that committed to one another, that we would be partnering with God to say, you are not to me just what I see right now in terms of your beauty, but you've got more to give, and I want to be a part of exploring that with you and drawing it out of you and speaking truth and love to you and meditating on this who you are in Christ idea, so that we get to experience the beauty of God and his creation together. And so to co-partner with God in the development of a new masterpiece, this is actually where Ephesians is headed as he begins to talk about all these different relationships and what it would look like to live out of his grace with one another. And lastly, not only do we receive his grace, the grace of the maker, and realize that we are his masterpiece, but we embrace The new creation mandate. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And so as a new creation, there is a mandate. And Paul lays out for us like this. I'll just give you two places as you work through Ephesians. But in chapter 5, here's what he says. Be imitators of God, therefore as dearly loved children. So how does this new creation mandate begin playing out as a new creation? I become an imitator of God, and I live a life of love 
just as Christ loved me. And then chapter 5, verse 8, for you were once darkness, but now you are a children of light. And here's what he says, for the fruit of light consists in all goodness, all righteousness, and all truth. And so what that means is that, yes, it is critical that we share the gospel with words, the words of truth. We make disciples and we share. But what's also true is that our work is not just incidental because all goodness and all righteousness which comes out of us is part of the new creation mandate. It's part of the original work that God has had for us when he created us in the garden and now it's to be recreated anew in Christ. Genesis 1, 27 and 28. What was the original work God had for us? So God created man in his own image. We're to be an image bearer. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Here is God looking at every sphere of creation. The skies, the land, the earth, the heavens. And he is saying all that, Adam and Eve, you see that every square inch of it belongs to me. And I am made it and I'm entrusting it into your care. I want you to fill it with the glory of God. And I want you to be fruitful and multiply, to have dominion over it and subdue it. And what that means is that I am calling my people, my image bearers, to harness the potential that exists in all creation, every resource, every relationship, every sphere of creation, and develop it to its fullest potential so that my people and my creation would flourish in every sector, medicine, law, education, the home, every square inch would display the beauty and love and truth of God. That's what it means to be God's workmanship. That you as a divine image bearer would flood the earth and fill it with the gracious love of God that every square inch of creation would develop into all of its fullness. And so in the hands of the master artist, his workmanship redeemed and free and holy has good work to do once again. He's called us to this amazing work, which means that there is work that is unique for you. If God has prepared good works for you to walk into, it means that the pastors are not the major players in this story. It means that you are the major players. You, the church of Jesus Christ, you're Christ's hands and feet and his voice to this community and to your family and to the children in your life, every day is an opportunity to bless, to build, to reconcile, to renew, to feed, to heal, to love right where you are, to teach. What personal relationships are there around you that you can create and develop? What can, we can learn names. We can start friendships. We can invite to dinner, follow up on a smile. We can even follow up on sadness that we see. We can say, hey, are you doing okay? And every single time we enter into this, through the Spirit of God, we're on mission. You know, the mistake that we make is believing we're too busy with our work to be in ministry or we're on mission when it's actually our work is one of the first places that we're called to start. And so if you're a teacher, 
That means that whenever you see a student and you study hard and you work with them and you help draw out connections and light bulbs come on for them, you're on mission. And if you're a coach drawing out the potential and encouraging and loving every single one of your athletes, then you're on mission. And if you're in construction and you make pipe fittings that are snug and cabinets that are you know, beveled and level and straight, then you're on mission. You're part of bringing beauty into the world around you. And if you're a surgeon and you make incisions that are clean, you're on mission. You are a blessing to the world and you're making it beautiful. Our work, the good work that flows out of us is part of the way that God transforms the world around us. And so experiencing the love of God transforms us from being consumers who work to get things from other people and views people as competition for resources, and instead it frees us to serve and to bless and to share connection with others. God's redemption makes us the freest people on the planet. But Paul says, please, do not use your freedom as an opportunity to serve the flesh. Chapter 4, he says, as a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. What he's saying is don't be an object of God's redemption and then use it to live for the weekend. Don't live for the weekend where the declaration of your soul is, thank God it's Friday, I don't have to work anymore. When we think about life that way, what we're saying is our work is just incidental. It's just busy stuff that we have to do on our way to heaven. And that it's a part of getting a retirement and, and saving money so that we can have the good life later on. God says, no, if you see your work that way, I have much, so much more for you. You're missing what it means to walk into the good works that I have prepared in advance for you as my image bearer, as somebody who is to be brought into my creation, new creation mandate. So one of my pastoral mentors says that it's a pastor's job to convince people in the congregation to say, not thank God it's Friday, but thank God it's Monday. Thank God it's Monday. I get to move into my sphere of work and bring beauty and new creation and the truth and love of our creator into those relationships, into that sphere of creation and to see newness of life. It's like where we say with Esther, I'm here for such a time as this. This is the greatest day to be alive as a Christian. The worse the world looks around us, the scarier things get, then this is the day for me. This is the best day to be a Christian because I have the words of life and I have the words of redemption and I have the words of freedom and I have Christ's spirit in me and I get to move out there and see new life, the contrasting picture of death and life. I get to be a part of that, of that restoration. Is that your perspective? It is not my perspective so often. And so if you're like me, then what we need most is to be reunited to Jesus and to come feast at his table, even this morning. And so let's pray together as we prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper. Father in heaven, we, uh, we thank you this morning that we are your workmanship and that you are doing something far greater than we would ever hope or dare to imagine. We see our desires and our motivations, and we recognize how far we are from really wanting and living out with this life of congruency. 
God, the only way that can happen is if you bring your spirit to bear in new and fresh ways in our lives. So we thank you that you've given us this table as a means of tasting and seeing that the Lord is good and that your work for us is good, that your work in our lives is good no matter how you bring it about. Oh, we're so resistant to grace. But God, I pray that you would use your grace even this morning through your table to bring about cleansing and newness of life. We pray in Christ's name, amen.